Amen. All right, so we're going to get into the Word today. Philippians chapter 2 is uh, where we're at. We're moving on. We've, we were in uh, uh, <clears throat> verses, what is it, 5 through 11. We were camped there for a few weeks. We were talking about humility, looking at the example of Christ's humility, and we're going to move from there. Looking in Philippians chapter 2, we're going to move on to passage in verses 12 through 18, and we're going to talk about working out our salvation today. That's, that's our, our focus here. So Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 through 18, and it says, therefore, I want to stop on that word right there and just preach for a little while, therefore. D- David Cook said, when you see the word therefore, you have to ask why the word is there, what the word is there for. Uh, so it, it's pointing us back to what has already been said. So this passage, these verses, verses 12 through uh, 17, we're going to go through 17, I want to put them into context. The context of the book, this is a church, we've talked about this a lot, but this is a church that there's some division. We don't know what that division is, but we know there's division. And the whole purpose of this letter that Paul wrote to the Philippian church was written was to bring some resolve to that, to, to bring some unity to this church. So that's the context of the book. Let's look at the context of the chapter. He, he's tying what we're about to read to what's already been said. Okay? What has been said. This, this, this chapter opens with an appeal. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1, he talks, <coughs> excuse me, he talks about, about being like-minded, uh, be, being of one accord and one mind, doing nothing with selfish ambition or vain conceit. He says that we should esteem others better than ourselves and that we should look out for the interests of others before we look out for our own interests. So that's the beginning of this chapter. This is what Paul is encouraging this church with. There's division and he's encouraging them. Hey, be be of the same mind. Get, Get some unity here. Be of the same mind. Be of the same spirit. One accord. One mind. Be like minded. Don't do things through selfish ambition or vain deceit, right? So he, he, he's, he's conceit, I should say, not deceit, but vain, vain conceit. Um, we should esteem others better than ourselves. We should look, to the interest, look out for the interests of others. He's, he's compelling them. And this is the way we overcome division, right? Start looking out, stop looking out for our own interests. How did this church get in conflict? Two parties with different interests, right? They had a different motivation of why they were coming to church, why they were involved in this community. They both had different interests, different motivators, and he's saying, hold on, stop that. Look out for somebody else's interest and not your own, right? See, that's, when we start looking out for our own interests, that's when we get in trouble. We've talked about that a lot in this series. So, so he's, he's compelling them, be of the same mind and look out for other people. And then the passage that we just looked at he says, here's your example. Here's the ultimate example of how to do this. Let the mind that was in Christ be in you. And he talks about how he humbled himself. He became a servant, right? He put, think about this. Jesus put us before himself and what he did on the cross. And that's the ultimate example. And he says, because of that, do this. And he's about to tell us this. We're going to read it today. Because of what Christ has done, you can stop the division, you can stop 
fighting over your own self-interests, and you can do this. That's what we're about to get to. And then he gives two examples at the end of the chapter. He gives Timothy and Epaphroditus as more examples of being selfless and caring for others. So here's, here's the instruction, all right? Therefore, because of this, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, and this is an encouragement to him, you've, you've always obeyed. And, and Paul, all throughout this book, he speaks in these terms of endearment. He, he's encouraging. He's speaking well of them. He's, he's rebuking them and correcting them, but all the way through it, he's, he's speaking well of them. He's encouraging them through the rebuke, right? It's the, uh, the, the love sandwich. How many of you have heard of that? The meat's the discipline. My youth pastor taught me this. The meat is the discipline, and you've got to put two slices of love on each side of it. The bread is love. So a, a good discipline sandwich is, is, is uh, sandwiched in love. And he does this. He, he's, he's encouraging all the way through. Even though he's, he's provoking a change in this church, he encourages them all the way through it. He says, uh, you, you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay? In other words, live like a Christian. That's really what, he, what he's saying. Live like a Christian. You're, you're not living Christ-like right now. You're, you're, you're quarreling. You're, you're squabbling over, these, over your own interests. Stop it. Right? And, and then he goes on, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. God, God's in you. God's working in you. He says, work it out. God's working in you, work it out. And then he, he, he explains how they should do that. Do all things without complaining and disputing. That you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as an off, a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all for the same reason you also be glad and rejoice with me. So Paul is encouraging them. Because we have this example that Jesus has set, you should work out your salvation with fear and trembling. God is working in you. And so you should allow it to work out of you. What God, we need to allow what God is working in us to work out of us. Amen? How many of you know the Spirit of God is active and working inside of us? And we need to let God do His work in us. A lot of times we compartmentalize our life and we don't let God work in us. Hey, like, God, hey, you can, you can work with that, that bad habit that I've got. You can take that addiction, but I'm going to hold on to this over here, right? I, I want you to work over here, but I'm not ready to give you this relationship yet. I, I, you can work over here, but I'm not quite ready to give you my finances yet, right? So we, we, we let God work on certain things, but we, we don't give God all of us. Let God do his work in you. Let God have his way in you. Let God do what he wants to do. That takes yielding and surrendering. God is trying to work in us. We have to yield and surrender to that. Amen? Amen? 
So this working out your salvation, this is not about working to be saved. We need to understand that. If, if you're saved, that's the work of Jesus. He did it on the cross, right? All, all we can do to, to, to be saved is, is to yield, to surrender, to give up, and allow God to do his work in us. Right? We can't save ourselves. There's, there's not any of us in this room that, that could be good enough to be saved. No matter how hard you work, no matter how many uh, I's you dot and T's you cross and, and rules you follow and, and changes you make in your life, you cannot save yourself. Salvation clearly is a gift. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, it talks about it. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God pre prepared before that we should walk in them, right? And this is also in this, it's talking about this, this thing of God's work working in us. We are his workmanship, and so we should walk it out, right? We should live it. Because God's working in us, we should live it out. We, we, we are, are being prepared for good works, right? It's, it's in this. In another picture of this, that God's working in us, it needs to work out of us. God's doing something in us that needs to manifest in our lives. People need to see the fruit of the work of God, what he's doing in our heart, manifest in the character of Christ in our lives. Amen? Amen? But let's be clear. This is not working to be saved. This is working because we have been saved, right? Amen. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's not working to be saved. Salvation is a gift to be, be received. It's not an accomplishment to be achieved. But once we have received that, now we are responsible to work from that, right? We're not working for our salvation. We're working from our salvation. Jesus has made a difference in us. He saved us. And we're now working from our salvation. This, this idea of working out our salvation, it's, it's, it is just that. It's working out what's on the inside of us. It's, it's allowing what God has done to manifest outwardly, what God has done inwardly to manifest outwardly, right? When, when you cut a banana, or I'm sorry, when you cut an orange, a better, better illustration, when you cut an orange and squeeze it, what's going to come out? Orange juice, right? It's fruit. It's the fruit of the Spirit, right? It's working on the inside of us. We need to let it come out. We have a decision. Are we going to live in the flesh, or are we going to live life to the Spirit of God. That's, that's, that's what we're talking about here. Are we going to continue to let the carnal things dominate us and manifest out of our life, or are we going to allow the Spirit of God to rule in our lives and the things of the Spirit to be manifest in our life? That, that's what we're talking about here, right? And, and it, 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 Jesus talks about this. It, it, it's it, Here in this verse, in verse 15, in this passage in verse 15, look, look at the wording. He says, Go, let's go back to 14. It says, Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. So, so we have that context to live in. We know that, right? So we live in a crooked and perverse generation. And it says, Among whom you shine as lights in the world. So Paul's saying, Let this, what God's doing in you, come out so that you would shine as lights. 
It's what Jesus says in, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's what Paul's talking about here. Letting the work of God that's on the inside of us come out so that men would see it and glorify God. That's what the Apostle Paul's, when he's talking about working out our salvation, that's what he's talking about. The goodness of God being manifest outwardly for people to see. It's, it's a change, a transformation in our disposition, in our conduct, the way that we treat people, the way that we relate to folks, the way that we walk in this world. It's a change. And, and every, every time I, I, I think about this inworking of God, I, I, that song just starts, something on the inside, working on the outside. Y'all know that? Now you know why she's the worship leader in the family, right? God's working in us. And it should be manifesting out in our lives. And, and he gives an admonition here, let, do it with fear and trembling. Do it with fear and trembling. See, there are dual motivators. There are two, two motivators in Scripture for us as believers to live holy lives. There are two things that motivate us, according to the Scripture, to live a holy life. Two things that motivate us towards holiness. The first one I, that I'll give you is the best one, love. Right? If, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments and it's not grievous. Where you'll, you'll do what I'm asking you to do and it's not a hard thing. Because you're in love. Anybody ever been in love? It, it, wasn't, it wasn't a burden to shell out 50 bucks to buy roses. right? When you were, it wasn't a burden when I sold my, my last horse that I've ever owned to buy an engagement ring for my wife. I did it because I loved her. It motivated me, right? So love motivates us to please the Lord, to live holy lives. That's the first motivator. The second motivator that Scripture gives us, that God gives us, is fear. That's what Paul's talking about here. Fear and trembling. You see, there's, we've been saved, right? We've been justified. Like when, when you're saved, when you're born again, the Spirit of God comes and takes up residence, and you, you're transformed from darkness to light, when you're born again, you are justified. But what this, this process is, so you're saved, and that's a gift from God, right? You can't earn that. All you, all you do is stick your hands up and say, I surrender. I give up. You stop fighting God, you yield to God, and he saves you, right? But then there's a process of justification, and this takes the work of God and our work. It's God who's working in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure, and you must work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's twofold. We're, we're working with God for our sanctification. That's part of our salvation, our sanctification. That, that, that's the work that God does in us to make us look like Jesus. And it, it's an it's a ongoing process that day by day we would look more and more like Jesus. This is the teaching of the Scripture. We, in our Christian walk, are striving to look like Jesus every day. We should be growing in that. We should be changing. How many of you are not the same as you were last year when you got saved or 15 years ago or 20 or 25 or 40 years ago when you got saved? You're not the same person, right? You would not have liked me 25 years ago. I was a nasty, foul person. But God has redeemed and changed, and it's been a process. And we're working that out. My justification, we're working that out. God and I are working on it. We're partners in it. We're working it out. That's the picture that Paul is talking about here. 
You see, there, there is, and it's a doctrine, there, the doctrine of remaining sin. How many of you have ever heard of that? That just because you got saved, it doesn't mean that there's not a, a capacity for sin in us. There's still opportunity for us to sin, even though we have been saved, right? And that, that's the battle. We, we battle against this through the Spirit of God to overcome sin's hold and sin's power over our lives. And early on when we get saved, we need fear and trembling to live holy lives. We need the discipline of the Lord, the correction of the Lord. We need to be uh, rebuked by God sometimes so that we, sh we sh change and shape up. But as we mature, the further we go in our Christian walk, our, our, our lifestyle is motivated more by love than fear because we're growing in maturity, right? And it's perfect love casting out all fear. We're falling in love more and more. We're in this relationship with God. We're in this relationship with Jesus, and it's changing us. It's transforming us. And it becomes, it, it gets to the point where I, it's not a burden to, for me to serve. It's not a burden for me to witness. It's not a, a burden for me to, uh, to, to mow somebody's yard or to serve in the church or work in the sound booth or uh, to give in the offering or whatever it is to pray. It, it's not a burden anymore because I'm in love with Jesus. And we grow in that more and more as we mature in our Christian faith. So he's talking about this. Work out your salvation. God's working in you. Work it out. And he gives a reason that you may become, in verse 15, blameless and harmless, children of God, without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you would shine as lights in the world. And he gives us two very specific things sandwiched in there about what that looks like. They're the two things they're involved in, evidently, in this church. Right? He says, do it all without complaining and arguing. Whenever there's disputes, there's going to be complaining and arguing. Right? Complaining and arguing. And he says, do all without complaining and disputing. So we're going to tackle those two things real quick. Complaining. I believe complaining is sinful. Complaining shouldn't be the mark of a Christian. You'll never find anybody who's, who has gratitude who's a complainer. You only complain about what you've got when you're not satisfied in what you've got. We need to learn to be grateful. Gratitude is a sign of wholeness. If you're constantly complaining about what you've got in life, about situations and circumstances, about people or things or whatever's going on in your life, if you're constantly complaining about it, it's, it's a sign to you that there is a gaping hole in your soul that you need repaired. Gratitude is the sign of wholeness. You remember the ten lepers? Right? Jesus healed them physically, healed their physical bodies there were 10 of them. They left. One of them returned, and he gave thanks. And listen to the words of Jesus. Your faith has made you whole. Weren't the other 10 healed? Yes, they were physically healed. He wasn't talking about this leper's physical body. He was, he was acknowledging that this man's soul was whole because he was grateful. Gratitude is a sign of wholeness. It's a sign that the work of God in your life has been effective, that you have yielded and allowed God to do what he wants to do in you and make your soul whole. 
right? That, that's why the Apostle Paul, in this letter, he, he, he says this. He says, and, and I, I believe in prosperity, biblical, biblical prosperity, like not get rich, drive big cars, live in big houses. I believe in the, the, the prosperity that, that Paul gives in this book. He says, I, I've learned whether I'm rich or poor, whether I abound or I am abased, I've learned whatever state that I am in, therewith to be content. You see, gratitude and contentment, they're signs of wholeness. Complaining is sinful. I'm going to show you that in Scripture. It's sinful. Do not grumble, James says in James 5, 9. Do not grumble against each other. Don't complain against each other, brethren. Least you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 through 10. But the, the, the end of all things is at hand, Peter says. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all, be fervent in love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling or complaining. As each of you, each one has received a gift. Minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. I think this passage right here would be well spoken to this church of Philippi where there's division. Hey, love each other. Serve each other. Give hospitality to one another. Again, this is the way we overcome this thing of division, by serving each other, by loving each other, fervent love for one another, being hospitable without complaining. Right? That's how we overcome it. Jude, in, in Jude, the uh, 16th verse of Jude, there's only one chapter, in the 16th verse, he calls, he talks about the apostates, he gives a description of their attributes, the apostates, and this is what he says, and those, the, the apostates are the ones who are opposed to God, who have rebelled and turned against God. These are the apostates, and of them, he says, they are grumblers and complainers. God never speaks well of complaining in the scripture. I could give you instance of in, after instance. The people, uh, the sons of Korah complaining against Moses, Aaron and Miriam complaining against Moses. We could go through the scriptures, example after example of people who complained. And look at what God did to those people. In, in uh, what 1 Corinthians 10, when it talks about the people who fell dead in the wilderness, one of the things that lists about them, they grumbled and complained. Right? Complaining is not healthy. It is not. Here's a, here's a few reasons, and I'm going to give you this quote, Pastor Kyle Eidelman, right here in Louisville, this quote. He says, the language of arrogance is complaining and criticism. The language of humility is gratitude and encouragement. Isn't that good? One more time, the language of arrogance is complaining and criticism. The language of humility is gratitude and encouragement. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. A few reasons why we shouldn't complain. It deteriorates our faith. Complaining de deteriorates our faith. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you're not satisfied with what, what God is doing and you begin to complain about it? Does that do anything good for your faith? Think about it. It erodes our faith. Complaining does nothing but cause unneeded stress in our lives. Right? I mean, we, we, we love complaining. I mean, it's like the American pastime. We complain about what's on TV, what's not on TV. Right? I mean, we, we, uh, we complain about the 42 billion different selections of restaurants we have in, time, in, in town, but they're not enough. 
Where do you want to go eat? I don't know. There's nothing good around here, right? Think about all the complaining that we do. We've got so much, but we complain about it, right? And it adds unneeded stress to our lives. Complaining, complaining will cause you to forget all the things that God has done for you. The opposite, gratitude, we're constantly remembering the goodness of God and all that he has done, right? And we're, we're, we're called, compelled, come into his presence with thanksgiving, not grumbling, but thanksgiving and gratitude. Complaining gives Satan an opportunity to sneak in in our relationships, in our families, in our churches, in whatever, whatever we're involved in. It, it opens us up to, to his many lies. That's what complaining does. Complaining gives a poor testimony. You sit around the office all day complaining about work, complaining about your spouse, complaining about your kids, complaining about this, and then you want to tell them about Jesus. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Why do they want to hear anything about Jesus from your, your grumbling mouth? Think about it. It, it. it gives a poor testimony. So that, that's complaining. How do, how, do we, how do we move beyond that? How many of you have ever seen things that are not right? What do we do about that? Do we complain about it? I think we ought to do something about it. Instead of complaining, we ought to do something about it. I, I've come to believe in life that when you see something that frustrates you, it may be God giving you a call to it. When we were pastoring in Kentucky, we had a youth ranch at our church, and there were all kinds of problems. I mean, we had kids that got stabbed at the youth ranch, lack of discipline, lack of control. There were all kinds of issues going on there. It was causing, we had a Christian school. It was causing problems in our Christian school. It was causing problems in our church. People were concerned about coming to church because some of the kids were dangerous and not well-managed. And you know, what I, you know what I did? I started a, a complaining campaign. I started a complaining campaign, griping about all the things that were wrong at the youth ranch. Negative, negative, negative. Every, every negative thing that I saw about it. These, the, the, we got the wrong personnel. We, we got the wrong strategy. We got that, everything I could see wrong about it. I was, I was, and, I, and I did it in elders' meetings. So that's justifiable, right? I wasn't complaining openly to the church or out in public. I did it in the elders' meetings. So that's justified, right? No. You know what happened in that situation? God began to re reveal to me that, hey, maybe you need to do something about that. So you know what I did? I became the director of the youth camp for the next couple years, worked, worked, began to work trying to remedy some of the many problems that we had there. I got involved, and we made some progress. Did we fix everything? No, we didn't. You're always going to have problems. There will always be something to complain about. But we made progress. See, whenever there's a frustration, you need to stop and say, hey, God, do you want me to do something about this? I'll pick on my son. My son... Mows the churchyard. I thought it looked beautiful this morning when we pulled up. He did a great job. So I'm just picking on him. He does a great job, but I'm going to pick on him. You, you, you pull up in the church parking lot, and he's been out here working, volunteer. He doesn't get paid to do it. He volunteers to do it. And you gripe and complain about the weeds in the, in the fire beds. And you just go and chew on Noah because... There are weeds in the fire beds. After he's hot and sweaty for the last two hours mowing and weed eating and just didn't get to the flower beds, but 
He worked hard. So what, what should we do in the situation? Maybe we could encourage, Noah, hey, you, are, you did a great job mowing. I'm going to come help you pull weeds. You see the difference? See how you can change the world? Just by a simple switch in the way you approach something that's undone, something that's wrong. Conversations, encouragement, help, right? You could look at my life and you could find all kinds of things that are wrong. Let's go to your house and look at your life. What's undone in you, right? We've all got stuff undone, we all need help, right? We need to recognize that. That's what maturity does. We recognize that this is a place where I can make a difference. I've got some spare time. I can show up for an hour and I can, I can help them get through that. I can help them. I've got expertise in this area. Maybe I can pitch in and make a difference. All right, so let's move on. Arguing, arguing. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14 says, Remind them of these things charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit to the ruin of the hearers. Every one of you have an audience. I'm going I'm to preach my little social media sermon here. I like to preach this sermon. Every one of you have an audience. You've got family members that you can influence. Some of you have social media platforms. 100 people, 200 people, 1,000 people. Who knows? You got coworkers. You got people you can influence. You've got people that will hear your voice until they won't hear your voice. One of the quickest ways to lose influence with people is incessant, combative, argumentative attitudes. If you're constantly hammering the president and Congress, and what's wrong with the culture, and teenagers who are horrible, and this person and that person, your audience is shutting down on you. That's why I don't put a whole lot of political stuff. My message is Jesus. My message is Scripture. And I'm going to stay on that message. Because I don't want to lose influence because I'm arguing. If I lose influence because of the stumbling block of Christ, that's one thing. But if I lose influence because of my foolish, argumentative spirit, that's a whole other story. So stop all the nonsense. Stop all the nonsense. We're going to see more reasons not to criticize the president and the Senate and the Congress. and all. We're going to see some more, more right here about arguing. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 23. Avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they only generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach and patient. Stop quarreling. Be gentle and become a teacher. You're never going to wrestle anybody into looking more like Jesus. But by the example of your disposition and your teaching, that's how you're going to win them. Amen? Amen? Don't argue with folks. Be gentle, be kind, and teach. Be patient. How about Titus chapter 3? 
verse 1 through 2, remind them to be subject to the rulers and authorities, to obey them, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one. You're blasting your cousin on social media. You're blasting this one. You're blasting the coworker at the office. You're constantly blasting some politician. Speak evil of no one. I will never speak disparaging remarks about the president. I don't care if it's Joe Biden, Donald Trump, Barack Obama. You know why? Because I respect the office that God has set them in. Amen. God puts every single one of those men in office for a reason. Just like my wife says, God, God gives us, I believe this, God gives us the leadership we deserve. If you don't like what's in, in the office, take a look inside. What's wrong with our, our White House is not the world, it's the church. It's the church. Right? Judgment comes because, not because of the world, but we, judge, the day of judgment's coming for the world. Today when judgment comes, it comes because of the church. Right? So when we have wicked leaders in place, it's because of us. It's because of the wickedness that we've permitted and allowed. Not in the world. The world's going to do what they do. But in the church. That's the reality. So stop speaking ill of these men. You don't like it? Repent. Humble yourself. Ask God to raise up righteous leadership. Amen? It was the pattern of Israel, right? They would get into sin and God would send somebody to punish them. They would turn to him and they, he would rise up, raise up a righteous leader. Right? It's the pattern. It's the pattern. Stop worrying so much about elections. And elections matter. Don't believe me. Vote. Be involved in, in that process. All of it. I'm not negating the, the, the political process in America. I'm not. But we are so hyper-focused on the wrong thing. Right? Listen, the White House does not control the upper room. Amen? When do the White House have more power and authority than the church? Why are we so upset about that? We need to be upset about the fact that nobody shows up for prayer meeting. That we are every other Sunday and we consider that faithful attendance to the house of God. That's what we ought to be concerned about. We're concerned about all of these other things. You got all that sermon because it says to speak evil of no one. <laughs> speak evil of no one. Be peaceable. Be gentle. And show all humility to all men. Literally, when it says to be peaceful and gentle, it's, it, it, what it's saying is don't be combative. Stop quarreling. Stop the argument. Let that nature that's in you dissolve. I'm seeing this. Man, I, I, 20 years ago, I used to love controversy. You, you name it, the most controversial topics. I could give you the, I mean, I'd just take you right to the scripture and cut to it and just be mean about it. Mean and controversial. But the longer I go, the more I'm seeing the foolishness in that. Right? Having to prove people wrong and there's no joy in it. There's no glory in it. There's no peace in it. I don't have to prove a sinner right, wrong. I, I, I don't, 
We don't have to prove how awful the, the, the political systems and our politicians are, how wicked the sinners are in the world. They, I mean, that's a reality. We don't have to prove it. That's the reality. You know what I've got to do? I've got to be gentle and humble, patient with people, and teach the word. Live a life of an example. Jesus didn't force anybody to repent. He didn't force anybody into his kingdom. He came and showed an example, and he preached the word. That's the way that we do it. So this is the... the, 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 um, admonition in, in this, this section of scripture. How, how do we shine as lights? It's not being a disunified church. It's not by complaining about everything and arguing about everything. It's, no, it's putting our differences aside, serving one another, humbling ourselves. That's how we shine as lights. See, there, there's a reason this book was written. And this is the heart of it. I've got one last passage of Scripture that I want to wrap up with. I'm going to ask our worship team to come back up here. I want to close out with this passage. It wouldn't really necessarily seem to fit, but this is what the Lord gave me. I read this passage, and when I read it, I thought, man, what a beautiful picture of what God desires for his people. Hosea, Hosea chapter 4. 14, beginning in verse 5. He says, I, I will be to Israel like a refreshing dew from heaven. This is God's desire for his people. He says, I will, I will. It's my desire to be to Israel like a refreshing dew from heaven. Hello? Israel will blossom like a lily. It will send roots down deep into the soil, like cedars in Lebanon. Its branches will spread out like beautiful olive trees, as fragrant as the cedars of Lebanon. My people will again live under my shade. They will flourish like grain and blossom like grapevines. They will be as fragrant as the wines of Lebanon. That's, that's the way that God wants us to live. That he would be to us a refreshing dew, that we would blossom like a lily, that we would put down deep roots into the soil, that we would spread out like a, the beautiful olive trees and be fragrant like the cedars of Lebanon, that we would live under the shade, that they would flourish and blossom like the grapevines and be as fragrant as the, as the wines of Lebanon. That's, that's where God wants us living. But you know where we live instead? We live in frustration and restlessness and anxiety, right? See, this is, one of the big things of this book is about motivation. Why was there a division? There was, there were two different motives driving two different people to contend. They, they had needs that they thought had to be met. They, they had agendas they thought had to be accomplished. And they were uptight about it. They were fretting. They were arguing. They, they were complaining. They're in this place of restlessness. 
and anxiety. That's why Paul says, be anxious for nothing. Right here in Philippians, he says, be anxious for nothing. Humble yourselves. That's the picture that's being painted in this. Don't be anxious. Humble yourself. Just pray about everything. Chill out. Stop trying to drive your own agenda because my God is going to supply your needs. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to worry about your agenda being caught. You don't have to worry about your needs being met. God is going to do it. My God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. If you'll just learn to wait upon the Lord, if you'll just humble yourself, if you'll just look to him, he will be like due to you. He'll cause your roots just to tap down and you will grow strong and your branches will spread out and you'll be fruitful and fragrant. Not anxious and impatient and demanding and entitled. Why didn't they promote me? Why did they overlook me? I deserve that position. You're advancing an agenda. Just sit back and let God advance your agenda. Sit back and let God do it. He's big enough. Amen? God is big enough, and he's good enough, and he's not withholding anything from you that you need. Amen? I believe that with everything that's on the inside of me. God is not withholding anything from you that you need. He'll withhold no good thing from you. I've come to understand that if God hasn't promoted me yet, I'm not ready. I remember going in, in my home church as a young man, going in and, and volunteering for things and not getting put forward after I had volunteered for it. It's humbling. It's frustrating. It can be embarrassing. But through that process, we learn to wait on the Lord. Right? We either wait or we get frustrated and we move on and away from God, away from the people. They hurt me because they didn't recognize me. They didn't meet my needs. They didn't promote me. No. Humble yourself and let God do the promoting. Amen? Let God do the promoting. He knows when you're ready. He knows when the time is right. He's the God who knows the end from the beginning. Don't you think he's, his plan is better than your plan? I thank God for the doors that is closed. I thank God for the opportunities that I thought I needed that God said, hold on, no. Amen? Get planted. Let God settle your spirit. He wants to be due to you. He wants you to put some roots down. We run here because we didn't get our way. We run there because we quit jobs, relationships, marriages, leave churches, all these things. We run from this to that, trying to get our needs met. Just wait on the Lord. Let God do it. Stop being anxious. Amen. If God knows how to take care of the sparrows, don't you think he knows how to take care of you? If God knows how to take care of the lilies in the field, how much you, you're, you're his child. You're the one he died for on the cross. Don't you think he knows how to get what you need to you, when you need it, where you need it, 
trust. Let's stand together. I want to close out this service. I want to give you an opportunity to come down to the altar and wait on the Lord. I want you to come and just plant your feet. Go ahead and move if you, if you're, if you feel like it's you. Come down here and move to the altar and just plant your feet and say, Lord, I want you to settle me. I want you to establish me. I want you to make me fruitful and fragrant. Spread my branches out. Lord, help my roots to tap down deep. Lord God, be due unto me and satisfy me. Father, I thank you for it. In Jesus' name. Let's worship, church.